Today, I have the pleasure of inviting Dr. Nicholas Wu to learn more about frogs and the chytrid fungus. Chytrid, if you haven't heard of it, is the world's most devastating pathogen on biodiversity, impacting over 500 species of frogs worldwide. We also talk about other factors impacting frogs, including pollution, habitat destruction, and climate change. Definitely a lot of fascinating insights on frogs and other amphibians in our discussion. So, hope you enjoy. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, Nicholas. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. Alrighty, so our topic today is on frogs and amphibians and how they are affected by this pathogen called chytrid. Before we dive into that, could you start off by giving us a high-level overview of the status of frogs and amphibians worldwide and why the topic we're discussing today is important? Yep, so amphibians, frogs and toads are considered the world's most threatened land animals, and over 40% of them are considered threatened. So that's a large proportion of frogs, you know, salamanders uh, that are considered uh, endangered relative to other land animals. Oh, wow, 40%. So what are some of the main threats that are causing such a large proportion of these amphibians to be threatened? Yeah, so there's a number of, there's a lot of studies looking into why they are considered threatened. And it's mainly coming down to kind of three main aspects. So direct human effects, indirect human effects, and these considered enomatic declines. So direct human effects, that can include frogs being used as food sources or pets or medicinal purposes. So they're being taken from the wild, transported around the world for human purposes, either for food consumption, used as pets, or for using them for uh, medicine purposes uh, in third world countries. Now, for indirect human effects, then these are subsequent actions of what humans have done. These can include uh, pollution, so plasticizers, endocrine disruptors from these pollutants, pharmaceuticals that are leaked into the environment, such as caffeine, estrogen-mimicking hormones, testosterone, uh, anti-anxiety drugs, all of these kind of chemicals put into the environment also affect frogs as well. And that can impact on the animal's health and therefore their survival, making them more threatened. Now, of particular interest is these enomatic declines. So these are declines not associated with human activity at all, and they can occur in you know national parks or even in pristine montane areas. And these have been kind of associated to either climate change or diseases. I'll give you an example. For example, um, these declines that are happening in montane regions, so like very high altitude areas, you could, uh, there's some studies that have shown that increased UV radiation exposure, you know, from the ozone layer uh, being opened up back in what, I think the 1980s or something. Um, can also contribute to DNA damage in these frogs in high elevation areas, and that can also lead to declines. 
And of course, an important one is disease, which is what we'll be talking about later. Got it. When you say 40% of amphibians are threatened, what exactly does threatened mean? Is, is it like threatened with extinction or like what's the definition of threatened? That is correct. Threatened with extinction. So when I mean threatened, there is an international union a national report, uh, the IUCN, uh, that actually measures or quantifies their relative risk to extinction. So it ranges from least concern to critically endangered. And when I say threatened, it basically means if they are considered near threatened to highly or uh, critically endangered, um, that that degree of threatenedness um, is where these frogs kind of fit in. Most of the frogs, over 40% of these frogs uh, fit in. Okay, so you mentioned three main types of effects that are impacting amphibians worldwide. So there's direct human effects, indirect human effects, and then enigmatic declines. Out of those three, do you have any stats on which one is the most prevalent? Yeah, it's definitely the indirect human effects. Actually, both indirect and direct human effects are the most common causes. And these are because they're the easiest to quantify. They're the easiest to actually measure. Because you can look at uh, human trade of animals across the world and also the effects by sampling the environment in well-known areas. The enigmatic declines are a lot harder to quantify previously, but now these days there's a lot better technologies and better survey efforts. And at the moment, they're all equally um, disruptive to amphibians. But the ones that are most easily seen is habitat destruction right that's the that's the one that you can easily see a large effect on amphibians when their habitats being removed destroyed you see declines immediately whereas something like an enigmatic decline you may not see these effects immediately but they will occur over time and a bit slower i just want to touch on the indirect effects there which you mentioned is impacting amphibians the most. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of pollutants, pharmaceuticals, chemicals that are leaked into the environment, and these will have an impact on amphibians, right? So can you elaborate on why amphibians are particularly impacted by these chemicals? So the skin of amphibians is typically thinner and more permeable than other animals, like us, birds, mammals, reptiles, and because they're thinner, they rely heavily on their skin to maintain internal balance. So they can drink through their skin, they can breathe through their skin, and they can exchange salts through their skin. So they do a lot with their skin. And because of that, any kind of damage on their skin will affect them internally as well. But because the skin is so thin and permeable, it can easily absorb chemicals from the environment into their body. So if you have something like a crocodile in the water and you've got pollutants leaking into it, they're not going to be affected as much compared to a frog because these chemicals are not going directly into their body from their skin as easily. So for frogs, that's a big problem because they can easily absorb a lot of these kind of chemicals that are in the environment into their skin. Interesting. Can you give us an example of a chemical or pollutant 
that has leaked into the environment and has impacted frogs on a large scale? Yeah. So there's a chemical that I previously studied known as bisphenol A or BPA, and it's considered an endocrine disrupting chemical because the way this chemical is structured is that it mimics the hormones of many animals. And so it's used as a plasticizer, so it makes the plastics strong, transparent, and malleable. And if, for example, if we throw that plastic bottle away into the environment and it degrades over time, those BPA chemicals leak out into the environment and any animals that encounter it will get absorbed into the body. And as I mentioned before, because frogs have a thin, permeable skin, it can be easily absorbed into the body, and that mimicking hormone will react with its body to cause some imbalance of some sort. And one of these uh, effects is known as, um, what was it, female, um, female estrogen-inducing hormone. So it's feminized the frogs, in fact. So if you're a tadpole developing in these uh, environments, you're more likely to become a female, mainly because there's higher estrogen levels uh, in your body from BPA that makes you more towards a female. Hmm. Very interesting. So the core of our discussion today is on enigmatic diseases, right? Yeah. In particular, the chytrid fungus, which is really taking a toll on amphibians worldwide. Can you, first of all, give us more context on what these enigmatic diseases are? Yeah, absolutely. So the enigmatic declines, uh, I mentioned before, they're associated with uh, areas that are not often associated with human activity. And diseases is one of the strong uh, candidates for that. And it's not just fungal diseases out there. There's all sorts of other uh, pathogens such as viruses. So there's a common one that is found globally as well that have caused some decline, but to a much lesser extent than chytrid. This one's called the Rana virus. And it's also well studied as well. And what this virus does is mainly affects farmed frogs. So it's mainly found in frogs that are very highly uh, densely packed and often in not the best conditions. You know, if you think about um, farm animals like cows, chickens, th- that kind of, you know, pigs, um, these these very dark and gloomy and crowd- overcrowded environments, you'll often find uh, ranavirus uh, prevalent in, in those frogs as well. So there are a whole sort of pathogens that can affect frogs um, definitely, but in terms of global declines, they none of those have reached uh, to the same extent as the chytrid fungus. On that note, what is the scale of chytrid, and why should this be something that we need to care about? Yeah, so chytrid is considered the world's most devastating single pathogen on biodiversity because it affects over 500 different species of uh, frogs, but that's still species, right? That's still a lot of species being affected, but just by one single pathogen. No other pathogens have this far-reaching effect. Um, you know, there are some that may affect maybe 20 species, or for, for example, rabies, and rabies virus can affect a whole suite of mammal species, but it's only been found 
and transmittable in a few species. So that's an example, but again, then not to the same extent as chytrid fungus. Very fascinating. Now, I know your expertise is in frogs in Australia. So how have the frogs there been doing over the years? Like, what's their history and have they experienced any declines? Yeah, they definitely have experienced declines. Um, So back in the 1980s, these researchers, these frog researchers started noticing um, fewer frogs in their surveys. So Australia has a really good history of frog surveyors going out and just actually measuring how many frogs are there in the wild. And over time, they noticed that these frogs have started to decline. You know, they all over the place, in urban areas, even in pristine areas well, such as national parks. And there's been a lot of evidence as well from uh, folks that noticed in their backyard that there were just fewer frogs calling during the summer period. And so this is kind of a nationwide um, observation, not only from... Uh, researchers, but also from citizens as well that noticed that there are fewer frogs calling and being noticed uh, in certain areas. And what has been shown is that there was a fungal disease that was discovered, I believe, in the 2000s. And it was described as a lethal fungal pathogen that seemed to be the cause, not the main cause, but has contributed a lot to the frog declines in Australia. And after that, it's noticed all over the rest of the world. In America as well, they also discovered this fungus around the same time. And there are also frogs that were declining around that period. So this was kind of a nice coincidence that two different areas seem to have discovered this fungus um, that has been contributing to frog declines globally. So this same fungus was discovered around the same time in the U.S. and Australia, even though these populations of frogs are not physically connected, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's the same fungus that was discovered both in America and in Australia at the same time, the same exact fungus, and yet they didn't know whether it was causing directly causing the decline or not, but after several experiments, they found that, yes, these frogs that were sick, they were caught from the wild sick, all of them showed these uh, pathogens on, on their skin. And so this was verified independently. And when they published that paper, they both noticed, uh, all the researchers started noticing, oh, look, you know, if we started sampling frogs from, you know, for example, Europe, we also find this effect as well. And so these kind of seminal papers have shown the that chytrid fungus, this this pathogen fungus, has been causing a lot of the frog decline around the world. Hmm. What led me to be aware of this chytrid fungus was that over the past decade, I started seeing more and more photos in National Geographic and social media um, of just lots of dead frogs floating in a pond or laying belly up on the ground. And this wasn't just like one frog, but dozens of frogs. So this is a large-scale death of frogs that's photographed by people. So I was wondering if those photos are related to chytrid or, or if it's something else. Most likely. Um, it really does depend. So you have to actually swab the frog, or if you notice that the frog has really red skin on its belly, 
That's a good indicator of being infected by a fungal pathogen. But there's a lot of other types of pathogens out there that can also cause these frogs to die off in, in large amount. Could also be pollutants in high amount, you know, oil spills or other kind of pollutants that could also have caused that as well. So it's not definitive that chytrid fungus is the cause of what you could see in these photos, but it's a prime suspect. Got it. So what exactly is the chytrid fungus and how exactly does it affect frogs? Yeah. So this fungus is has two kind of stages. It has a motile zoospore stage and a permanent uh, zoosporangium stage. So that's a two-cycle lifestyle. The mobile stage, what this fungus does is it swims in the water and looks for uh, the keratin on the frog skin. So it has chemical sensors that detect keratin on the frog skin or any keratin in, in the wild and it will go swim towards it and attaches itself to that keratin, in this case, the frog skin. It buries itself inside the skin, so it's just the top layer of the skin that it buries under, and then it grows into that immobile zoosporangium stage. So when it grows, it becomes this big ball um, inside the animal's skin, and then it develops more zoospores to be released into the wild. And that's how life cycle occurs, if it gets in contact with another frog or in a water body that's contaminated with chytrid fungus, then that other frog will be um, infected as well. And that's how this fungus is transmitted between one animal to another. Okay, so this is a fungus that looks for frog skin and then attaches itself to the frog skin, right? Mm -hmm. So once attached, what damage does it do to the frog? And how does it do that? Yeah, so it mainly is doesn't really do anything by itself. What it's just trying to do is just grow on the skin. It's just eating the keratin layer, right? But because the frog's skin is very sensitive to any changes, so if its skin is disrupted, all of its internal um, balance is disrupted as well. So it will just... It will continue to eat away at the top layer of the skin, but because the frogs rely on their skin to drink and regulate their salt and also breathe as well, all of these processes are disrupted indirectly. Now, there's been some newer research that's shown that the fungus itself secretes certain, not really toxins, but these other chemicals that helps digest the keratin uh, more easily. And it also has the ability to evade the immune system in some way. In some frogs, we'll get into differences later, but in some frogs, they can evade the immune system as well. What are some common symptoms that frogs experience once they're infected with chytrid? Yeah, so externally, uh, a very obvious one that you can keep an eye out for is the reddening of the skin. This is basically the skin being irritated, uh, inflamed, it's kind of similar to us when we are sick as well. Uh, our skin will be a bit more flushed because our blood vessels are expanding to try to circulate blood around more of the, for example, skin area to fight off the pathogen. That's what the frog is also exhibiting as well. And 
There are other factors behaviorally that you can observe as well. The frog becomes more lethargic, so it doesn't move as much. It loses its appetite, so if you try to give it a cricket or some kind of food, it won't attempt to eat it. And there are other more subtle um, differences as well, such as um, their ability to absorb uh, salts back into their body. So these are some signs that can be easily seen with a frog infected with chytrid. Got it. What's the cause of chytrid and how did it spread across multiple continents? Oh, the cause has been quite a bit of a debate uh, in the, during its early discovery phases. But it's there's two kind of hypotheses that were proposed uh, when chytrid was discovered. There's one called the novel pathogen hypothesis, which is um, similar to the coronavirus one as an example, where it spreads uh, across countries and it originated from uh, one place itself. So that's a novel pathogen hypothesis. The second one is the endemic pathogen hypothesis, which is that the chytrid fungus was already here for quite a while. So let's say it's been in Australia for even earlier than the 1980s. But it only became deadly because of some sort of change in the environment. For example, climate change that may cause additional stress to the frogs that makes them more uh, more susceptible to infection. Kind of think about like getting a cold immediately after an exam. You, you're all stressed out about an exam. You After you finish it, you go home and relax. And then the next day, you're, you're sick. It's happened to me many times. But that's kind of giving you an idea of what it means by an endemic pathogen hypothesis. Now, current theories have... The, the, the current um, theory is that these genetic data suggest that the chytrid fungus originated from Asia. So the oldest lineage of this chytrid fungus seems to have come from Asia, and it seems to have also uh, coexisted with the native frogs there with no declines associated with chytrid. So that's already a good um, leaning towards that hypothesis. But of course, more research needs to be done there because the research efforts in Asia are not as prevalent compared to Australia and uh, America as well. Interesting. And how did it spread from continent to continent? Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of theories. Um, the most likely one, though, is spread by... So, okay, there's, there's a couple of hypotheses out there. I'll, I'll give you two. One is a very unique one that I, I thought is interesting to discuss, um, but I don't know whether it's the current most prevalent. So in in the past, I mentioned that uh, frogs were used to be transported for medicinal purposes, right? And there's one type of frog called the African clawed frog that was being transported all over the world from Africa, and they were used as pregnancy tests. This is called the Hingbird test. The doctors would ship urine samples to frog lab and they will uh, inject female frogs with a bit of that urine. And if the frog laid eggs the next morning, that means the woman is pregnant because there's a hormone in the urine. If uh, if there is the hormone called human uh, chorionic gonadotropin, if that's present in human urine, 
and the frogs are able to detect it, um, they will lay eggs. So that was actually used as a pregnancy test um, before modern medicine was available in these countries. And because these frogs are shipped all over the world, they were also resistant to chitrid as well. So even though these frogs didn't look sick, they may harbor the chitrid fungus. And one of the hypotheses out there is that the frogs, uh, the, the chitrid fungus may have spread because of the African claw frogs being used as pregnancy tests. That was a very interesting um, uh, kind of research that I, came, uh, that I, I found uh, during my literature search. But whether or not it's the most prevalent, I'm not 100% sure. The most likely one is that it was transported from a lot of people just hiking in the woods. So they would bring their their dirty uh, shoes or clothing that they um, that contains the chitrid fungus overseas. They would just wear it and go out into the wild and just spread it that way. That seems to be the most likely uh, cause, the chitrid fungus. Yeah, this is yet another example of how global trade by humans is one of the biggest causes of spreading disease to wildlife populations. So what's the scale of chytrid right now? Is it pretty much on all continents? Yeah, it's basically anywhere you would find frogs. Even in places that you would not expect, um, apparently they're found in some almost arid regions as well. Um so they, they, they're, they're everywhere where frogs are now, which is very unfortunate. They've spread fast and wide. So even the most pristine areas would now contain this chytrid fungus? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Do we know how much amphibians worldwide have declined due to chytrid? Yep. So there's a recent paper that came out not too long ago that quantified how many species were affected. And over 500 species have been shown to be affected by chytrid fungus. Oh, wow. And five of them have been extinct directly from the fungus as well. So that's a lot of uh, species being affected. Pretty crazy. I'm curious. Off the top of your head, do you know which five species went extinct? Ooh. There is, I believe, uh, two in South America. It's one of the golden toads. Um, yeah, I don't remember the name off by hand. And there's this Australian species. There's actually two Australian species. Um, the gastric brooding frog. It's a very interesting species. Um, well, that, it, yeah, it astonishes me every time it ends. I don't think. So it's called the gastric brooding frog. It's because that when the female lays its egg, the males will consume the egg and keep it in its stomach. I believe it's either the male or female, no, one of them, will keep it in its stomach and the tadpoles or the babies will develop in the stomach and when they're ready to uh, come out, when they, after they metamorph into little babies, they will come out of the mouth and, and get released. And during that time, the, the frog, the mother or father, doesn't uh, eat during that entire period. They do. They have to digest food. And that's where the babies are. So they'll digest the babies as well. So they don't eat during that period, which is super amazing. This is the only uh, frog species that we know of that does this. Definitely sounds like a super fascinating breeding behavior. 
And yeah, it's unfortunate that they went extinct due to chytrid. Yeah. So we can't really learn more about this unique behavior. Yeah. So yeah, we, we covered the global state of chytrid and how that affected amphibians worldwide. What about among different species or populations? I, I assume there's a lot of variation. Yeah, so I was mentioning that if you want to know in terms of population damage, it does vary within species. So maybe even within one species, certain populations in one area may be completely decimated. You know, 100% of its population is gone. In some areas, it may be doing well, either because the fungus hasn't reached there yet, or maybe that population has some sort of uh, adaptation that allows it to cope with that fungus better. So from a population view, it, it really does depend on where you're looking at. You mentioned that over 500 species are affected by chytrid. So what exactly do you mean by affected? And I'm curious, how many total species are there? I just want to get a sense of like the proportion of frogs that are actually affected by chytrid. Uh, how many species? Oh, okay, so 500 out of, I believe there are... Just over 4,000 described species. So even though there's a lot, a lot of frogs, most of those 4,000 species, let's say I believe two-thirds of them, are very understudied. You know, they've maybe a few of them only have one individual described, so you can't really do survey study, you know, on population health, right, based on one individual that was found. So a lot of those frogs that were discovered in the 4,000 species, most of them are well or very understudied. And so for the 500 that is being represented here, that's already a large portion of those that have been studied. And so these, what I mean by 500 being affected, essentially is they've been shown either some populations or all the populations have declined because of the kickered fungus in some way or another. So we covered the discovery and the history of chytrid. We've covered what it does to the frog. Um, you mentioned that over 500 species are now threatened with extinction due to chytrid. So what can scientists do to kind of help these frogs out and reduce the spread or impact of chytrid? <laughs> so this is quite difficult to answer because... Um, Chytrid is pretty prevalent. Excuse me, pretty prevalent in the environment, and no matter how much people have tried to remove the fungus from the environment, there's been experimental trials of putting salt in in wetlands just to because the fungus itself doesn't really like highly salty environments, um, but that also causes problems for the frogs in a separate way. So. You know, it, th there's trade-offs, and we now realize that, you know, this fungus is here to stay permanently. We cannot uh, remove it or eludicate it um, in the near future. And so the best way to do is help the frogs in a way that they can adapt to it. And they do have the potential to adapt. There's been recent studies that have shown natural recoveries, especially in the epicenter, so where chytrid fungus was originally discovered in in South America, I believe Central America. There's been 
populations that have started to recover more recently after decades of, of absolute destruction on their population. Some of these populations now have started to show recovery. And that's great news. Not for all the frogs yet, but it's a good start. And we want to try to help these frogs um, build these resilience to the chytrid fungus and eventually get them to coexist, just like with the frogs in Asia. On the note of frogs in Asia, are the species there immune to chytrid, since there's a there's a theory that chytrid originated from there? Yeah, we believe that is the case. Um, there has been no declines associated with chytrid there. So that's already proving some um, area of research that we can look into, like, what, why are these frogs so special that they can avoid being um, clinically infected by these fungus? So a great way to do this is by doing some research with frogs in Asia uh, on their immune function and how they cope with the fungus. Unfortunately, research efforts in Asia are uh, not as uh, fast developing as compared to other countries, so there needs to be more progress there happening there as well. You kind of touched on this already, but can you talk to us about some of the major discoveries or advancements in understanding and tackling chytrid? Yeah, so major advancements. There's a lot of new techniques being used from a genomic standpoint, and this is a bit out of my area of expertise. There's been a lot of uh, advancements in whole genomic uh, that you can look at at an individual population level to understand disease dynamics. So like, why are some um, populations doing better than others? Why are some declining at a faster rate than others? And you can approach this using um, looking at differences in their genes from that. So maybe they had better adaptive immune responses. In this case, you can identify a certain gene if that's the case, you can identify certain genes that you can use to help um, those that are susceptible um, become more resilient over time. But that's kind of where the major advancements are happening. Other than that, researchers are still trying to better understand uh, how this fungus spreads, where it will spread to, and its interaction with other stresses. Because the most uncertainty about these frog populations, these amphibian populations, is that there are other stresses that are affecting them as well, right? You've got habitat destruction. Again, I mentioned pollutants before. So if you include both pollutants and a chytrid fungus, well, maybe a species that was previously um, resilient to the fungus may be more susceptible now because they were exposed to this pollutant in one way or another. And so the research now has been kind of focused towards understanding more complex dynamics. So we've already understand now where the frog, uh, where sorry, where the chytrid originated from, how it's spread, and uh, how many species is it impacting. But now we're trying to understand: can we help recover some of these species? What species are recovering? And what basically what is the future for amphibians in a chytrid world? What would you say are some of the priority next steps for chytrid research? And what are some of the key challenges that remain? 
Yeah, so basically it's to identify if populations will continue to decline or not. Um, there are some areas that we can better identify genes that can contribute to uh, immune responses. For example, this is a nice review paper that seems to be working on um, CRISPR development. Basically, it's a gene editing tool that originated in the bacteria. So these uh, bacterial genes uh, can use this CRISPR protein to modify certain genes uh, in a way that is beneficial to them. And we can use that CRISPR protein to modify genes in the exact way that we want. And if we can better understand the genes of these probes that are uh, immune to the fungus, we can use certain parts of those genes, get CRISPR to make more of them, and put it into other frogs that will make them more immune to the fungus. And so that's kind of an interesting area that some scientists are going towards. Um, again, not my area of expertise, but I, I think it's very fascinating that they're trying to do this, and I hope they are successful when they uh, publish it. Super fascinating. You mentioned one of the next steps is identifying which populations continued to decline. So let's say we've identified a population of frogs that are getting hit by chytrid and their numbers are indeed declining. Is there a protocol on what scientists or conservationists would do to help this population out? Yep. So it depends on how fast they're declining. If it's a slow decline, we will continue to monitor their situation and kind of provide um, just keeping an eye on how much of this decline is happening because there could be natural declines that are not associated with chytrid itself. It could be because of maybe it's just a bad season. You know, there might have been a drought season or some kind of natural um, decline that's happening and they, then they bounce back the following year. So if it's a really slow decline, um, it's just continuously monitoring and keeping an eye out, keeping uh, a careful check on those population. But if it's a really fast decline and we notice a lot of them dying, what the um, what people tend to do is try to get as many of the sick and healthy frogs from the environment, put them into a safe and closed facility, such as a zoo or a research facility, and they will either treat the sick frogs with uh, antifungal uh, treatments or put them in an environment that will help them get rid of the fungus quicker. And for the healthy animal, keep them in a very secure, isolated place for them to recover. And what these scientists will do, basically it's getting a sample of the populations um, to bring back into the lab, keep them there, breed them, so get them to breed, produce more offspring, and then slowly release them back into the wild once there's sufficient numbers enough to be released. So these are um, relocation uh, efforts to try to bring back the population that was previously de- devastated by the chytrid fungus. Nice, nice. So you mentioned chytrid is pretty much here to stay. It's very unlikely that we can completely eradicate it from the world. Um, I'm just curious, like from its discovery in the 2000s where it kind of just exploded in growth and spread across the globe and caused huge declines in frogs 
to right now in 2023, what's the trend like now? And like, has it, has it slowed down? Has it plateaued? Or is it still causing rapid declines in some frog populations? It's hard to say because studies that are published tend to be delayed um, over time. And so even though you may get a publication that just came out recently saying, oh, these frogs have been declining from you know, 2010 to 2019, um, that can only tell you what's happening during that period. Um, so it's very difficult to say what's exactly happening, happening now, exactly, mainly because the research effort, when you get the results, uh, you write it up and try to publish it, it takes years to, to get it out there. But it's very hard to say uh, about that. But based on what I've read, the declines seem to be steady. They're still declining, but not any faster than what is already being said already. Okay, well, it's good to hear that at least it's not getting worse. Yeah. One of the major findings you mentioned is that certain populations or species respond very differently to chytrid. Yes. So some have declined a lot, some were not affected at all. So there's clearly some discrepancies here. Could you give us some examples of this? And what were some of the characteristics of these populations that caused them to be or not be affected by chytrid? I believe, I'm trying to think of some clear examples because it does depend on the species. Okay, there's one that's based on their temperature preferences. So there are, even within one species, there might be some that are living in more colder areas and some are living in more warmer areas. Now, the chytrid fungus tends to be, tends to like temperatures between, oh, what is it? Around between 15 to 25 degrees, so kind of in the cooler areas. And so it doesn't do well, especially over 30 degrees. It doesn't uh, grow very well. And so populations that are growing, uh, that are living in colder environments uh, tend to be more sensitive to chytrid, mainly because the chytrid grows best around those colder temperatures. And so that's one explanation for why certain populations may be declining over others, mainly because of environmental differences that they inhabit. But there's also differences within the host themselves. So if the host, uh, sorry, if the frogs are uh, quite different uh, in their physiology, and it is possible, but not uh, as easily seen by example, um, they can exhibit better immunity, maybe because they live in a stress-free kind of environment, less stressful environment that allows them to build their immunity to better capacity in frogs in populations from a more stressful environment. I've I worked on green tree frogs, so Latoria sorolia is a very what used to be a common frog in in Australia. Um, they they tend to be doing better off in the northern regions of Australia compared to the southern regions. So. In New South Wales, it tends to be a lot colder during winter, and we've observed die-offs um, in a re- recent cold event. So I think because of the El Nino uh, events of the last two years, the winters have been particularly colder than usual down here in New South Wales, and these 
and these green tree frogs have been seen dead and um, very um, very sick as well. And whether or not it's due directly to chytrid, that's um, researchers are already looking into that now. But um, I think it's possible that chytrid is contributing to this. And because the northern areas uh, tend to be a lot warmer, you, we don't see the decline uh, as much compared to down here. Okay, so colder temperatures is one factor. Yeah, I'm curious how climate change comes into play here. But what do we know so far on how climate change affects the strength or prevalence of chytrid? Yeah, so you would expect that in a warmer world, the frogs would do better, right? Because they're going outside of the chytrid fungus uh, temperature preference. But that's actually not always the case. There's a really interesting research that published on Basically, it's called the thermal mismatch hypothesis. So they had two frog species. Well, they actually had a couple, but I'll give you an example. There's two frog species. One that prefers to live in cold environments and one that prefers to live in warm environments. Now, when they exposed the frogs to temperatures outside of their normal range, whether it was hotter or colder, they're more likely to be infected by chytrid. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a warmer temperature, a warmer uh, climate means that the frogs will deal better with the fungus. Maybe for some species, yes, but it's not as simple straightforward. If there's a cold uh, loving species, so if there's a um, species that lives in uh, cold streams uh, and only lives there, if the climate warms, they will become more stressed from that that temperature from that increase in temperature and that makes them more susceptible to the chytrid fungus yeah and i would imagine i mean climate change isn't just about the world getting warmer right i mean that's just the the average global temperature but weather variability is getting higher and higher we've seen like a lot of extreme weather events in recent years so i'm guessing that's an additional stressor for these frogs yes yeah unfortunately that's not as well researched Okay, well, that's on climate change. What about pollutants or other synthetic chemicals that we humans leak into the environment? How does that couple with chytrid to affect the frogs? Yeah, there's been a few studies that looked into that. So they what they found under experimental condition is they subject the frogs to both the uh, pollutant, whatever pollutant it is, and the chytrid fungus. They are more likely to die and they're more likely to get sick and so the combination of the two often has an additive effect so each individual stressor may do either nothing or just a little increase in the stress but having them both together uh, oftentimes will dramatically increase their likelihood of getting sick i guess this is expected i mean these pollutants and chemicals they're not good for anyone's health and like you said the skin of frogs is very permeable so i would imagine that these pollutants would cause a lot of health issues on top of what they're experiencing with chytrid that's right i guess another um area of research that people are trying to go into as well is whether the population's recovery um really does depend on us like can they recover naturally or or is it beca- can they be slowed down? Uh, if we slow down climate change, for example, 
um, can we also slow down the chytrid um, associated declines? And maybe if we stop putting pollutants into the environment, will that also stop, uh, reduce the amount of chytrid declines as well? So the, these are aspects that we don't really need to research directly on the fungus, but the environment that the frogs are in, if we provide better environments to the frogs, can they recover better on their own? And that's an interesting area of research that people are also looking into now. That would be very interesting. So based on our understanding of how chytrid works and based on the state of the world now, I mean, climate change seems to be getting worse and worse. Pollution is getting worse. Yep. Global trade is getting higher and higher. The world seems to be more, quote-unquote, globalized. So are there any impending threats to amphibians that you foresee that we should be aware of, that we should work on preventing? Yeah, so there's this new, well, new sister fungus that was discovered in 2010, not too long ago, and it was discovered in Europe. This is a fungus um, that mainly uh, infects salamanders and newts, and so the kidnapped fungus that I've been talking about previously mainly has affected frogs and toads. But this new sister fungus, which are very related to each other, um, affects mainly salamanders and newts. And this is, has been a huge drive and research effort to try to better understand um, how similar is this fungus to the one I've been talking about and how different is it? Like, why does it only affect, uh, well, not only, why does it more affect uh, salamanders than frogs and vice versa? And so there's a lot of research efforts going into understanding this. And because it's not widespread yet, it's not globally spread yet, it's only found in Asia and Europe, there's been trying, there's been concerns of what impact it will have in areas with very high salamander diversity, and that's the Americas. So in North America and South America, there's a huge diversity of salamanders. In particular, North America, I believe, has the highest diversity of salamanders, especially in the, um, where is it, in the eastern eastern coast of uh, America. They, there's a huge diversity of salamanders there, and if this sister fungus ever reaches uh, the Americas, that will be a huge problem to the local salamanders there. What's this sister fungus called, and what exactly does it do to salamanders? So the sister fungus is called, the official name is Bacatros Pitium uh, salamandavirium. Um, we call it uh, B-cell for short. With the chytrid fungus that I've been talking about, we call it BD. So that's the distinction there. Um, so B-cell, yeah, B-cell is its official name. So it has a similar effect to BD. Basically, it attaches itself to the skin. It also has two um, distinct stages, a motile zoospore stage and a zoosporangium stage as well attaches itself to the salamander skin, it grows on there, develops, and, and, and gets released again. And what it does to the host, it, it creates a whole sorts of um, disruption involving um, basically necrosis, so it eats away at the skin, similar to BD, but seems to be more aggressive towards salamanders in this case. And what it does for these salamanders is just causes them to not only lose their 
homeostatic balance, but also increases secondary infection as well. Because these wounds are open, they're more likely to be infected by other pathogens, such as viruses um, and also bacteria as well that can get in that can actually uh, have a greater impact on the salamanders than chytrid uh, alone. So that's also another concern of how the fungus disrupt salamanders. Okay. You might have already answered this, but to confirm, what do we need to do to prevent this fungus from spreading to the Americas? Or is it inevitable? Well, so far, regulations have been brought up to ensure that salamander transport is heavily regulated. So far, it seems to be working. Um, what I'm also worried about is because there are certain labs in, in America that actually keep uh, B cell for experimental purposes. So they, they keep them in very heavily, uh, heavy facilitated labs that they do experiments with salamander on to see how susceptible they are to the fungus. Um, if that ever spread, if that ever gets um, released into the environment as well, that's also a concern. But because they're heavily regulated, I have some confidence that uh, it won't spread in the Americas. It's not impossible, but it's the low probability that it will spread. I'm being optimistic here, but there's a possibility, but I believe because of the current regulations, uh, I think it won't likely spread. Yeah, hope it doesn't spread further. So let me ask you this. Let's say there's an imaginary global amphibian conservation program, and you are put in charge of it, and you're given all the funding and resources you need to do anything you want to help frogs out and just reduce their declines from human impacts, such as disease, pollutants, etc. What would you do to execute this? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that means that that's a heavy question. Yeah, um, saving the best for last. Okay, so if I had all the money in the world and all the resource power, you know, nothing's stopping me, I think... I would still go along the line of um, creating a safe environment for these amphibians to develop immunity, but at a global scale, essentially. And so there's all these individual labs out there trying these, maybe for one or two species at a time. And so it's, it's something, but it's not efficient. For me, I would attempt to do this at a global scale. So basically allow amphibians to adapt and eventually they will coexist with the amphibians. Because I mentioned before, it's impossible to remove chytrid from the environment. And so we can use the knowledge gained from how certain populations or species are able to adapt and cope with chytrid. And essentially that information can be used um, to help uh, my imaginary um, you know, facility to, to um, better... Um, allow these amphibians to adapt to chytrid infections. Here's another heavy question for you. We discussed a few main factors that are affecting frogs worldwide. So this includes habitat destruction, pollutants and chemicals, and of course, chytrid and other diseases. If we were to only prioritize on one of them, what would that be? Like, I know this episode is, is mostly on chytrid, but in the grand scheme of things, would focusing on something else be more impactful 
Like, yeah. for example, is habitat destruction or pollution taking an even bigger toll on frogs? Uh, Kitchen definitely is contributing. Um, I, I think all three of them combined, uh, you should definitely try to reduce that as much as possible, uh, mainly because they are all contributing to frog decline. The ones that are causing the most immediate and the most widespread at the moment is is um, habitat destruction. So deforestation, urbanization, all of those are the immediately cause of the crime, especially in very high um, populated areas. Uh, sorry, very high diversity areas of frogs. And if by doing that, if you're having more deforestation and more urbanization, you're going to have more people living there, right? And that means there's going to be more chance of pollutants getting into the environment. You know, you're building farms and, and agricultural um, lands that, you know, if you're dumping a whole bunch of, for example, nitrate or, or pharmaceuticals that you give to animals that are being dumped into the water, surrounding water, they're going to affect the, the frogs as well. So what I think is the biggest uh, priority we should focus on is ensuring that the the fro- uh, the environment is suitable for the frogs. So removing deforestation, um, replanting trees and, and, and building a more natural environment for the frogs. And that way, these other pollutants and chytrid um, also become less as well um, for that reason. Okay, so protecting habitats and removing deforestation. How exactly would you do that? Again, assuming you had all the money and power in the world. Like, is this a policy issue or, or something else? Yeah, you're leaving all the hard questions to last, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the fun part. It's a similar scenario to Kitrit. Um, but this one will involve more policy changes, mainly because it's the governments that are responsible for whether or not a certain area uh, will be defrosted or not. And so having uh, more strict policies on that uh, will, will help. Again, I'm not an environmental scientist or a politician, so I don't know the exact um, methods involved into dealing in dealing with the policies around that. But I would say getting government involvement and also people involved as well to help encourage this uh, would be uh, sufficient. Got it. From all your work studying chytrid and amphibians, if you could distill it down to three main takeaways or call to actions that you would like to share with our audience, what would that be? Call to actions? Hmm. I think an interesting one for the audience, um, they, they may appreciate this, is the involvement of citizen stars. So citizen science has been growing, especially a lot during the last decade. It's getting people actually involved in the science itself. So one area, uh, Australia has been trying to encourage this as well with frog calls, but um, anyone in the world can also contribute to this as well by photographing frogs in the wild. And what that can help scientists do is monitor changes in activity uh, frog activities and their population levels over time across a broad range of scales. If you have frogs in your backyard, you can just take photos of them, you know, 
in regular intervals over time, and scientists can monitor and keep track of those populations over time, whether they're increasing, you're seeing more frogs in the wild, or are they declining for some reason, especially if you see sick frogs, definitely photograph them, and and these scientists can use these photographs to help identify sick frogs, and then they can even use them to create predictive modeling on how fast and how regular kitchen could spread uh, around, especially its impact as well. And so getting people involved in this um, has a lot of power in, in the globalization of monitoring uh, frog populations. When you say identifying sick frogs, should we look out for a reddening on their skin, like you mentioned, which is indicative of chytrid? Or is there something else we should look out for? Well, any kind of sick frog. So it doesn't always have to be chytrid because this kind of information can be used for all sorts of different sickness. Let's say, for example, if the frog has a weird bulge on its head, it could be because of a, uh, what is it, a parasite that's on the frog? Or if it's developing weird um, deformities, like if it's growing a third leg, uh, it might be because there's certain pollutants in, in your water that might be causing it uh, to develop in that weird manner. So there's all sorts of diagnosis you can have if you notice a frog that doesn't look normal. Okay, so let's say I got a photo of a sick or abnormal-looking frog. Where can I submit this to? Uh, iNaturalist is a good global one. I was trying to think of an Australian example, but because the audience here could be listening from anywhere in the world, I think iNaturalist is a good starting point. For Australia, we have Frog ID. That's a very simple app where you can either take a photo of the frog um, from the app or a, a sound a voice recording of the frog, and you just click submit, easy as that. So if there's an equivalent uh, in, in your country, then you know, definitely use that. Otherwise, iNaturalist is one that scientists also regularly use as well. Perfect. So encouraging people to participate in citizen science, that's one of your takeaways. Do you have any more you would like to share? Yeah, so in terms of lessons, uh, the call action I would um, suggest is, is clean your boots every time or clean your gear every time um, you come back or go before you go out as well. It's easier said than done. Or a lot of people just come back from a big hiking trip. They sort of down and relax, so they'll just leave their boots out there. But that small little thing of just cleaning your boots and your backpack, you know, any of your gear will 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 help immensely in reducing the number of kitchen spread. In terms of the takeaway messages here, you know, chytrid fungus is devastating and emerging pathogens in general, like the coronavirus, can be devastating as well. But we know that there is natural resilience out there. So even though the frogs are declining, you know, left and right, uh, there is hope for these frogs to recover. And with the help of scientists, you know, more funding to do more research, we can help accelerate that and help them recover much quicker. And of course, why care about frogs, right? You know, some people might ask, oh, why, why would you need to care about frogs anyway? You know, I've, I've got more important things to worry about. Well, there are 
they're a huge indicator of a healthy ecosystem. If you have frogs in your in your area, you know you've got uh, a good ecosystem there. Because what they will do is uh, control for insect pests. They will eat mosquitoes. They will eat a whole bunch of insects that you may not like around your garden. And they're also good food sources for birds. So if you like birds, um, they will also keep your birds happy as well. And they are also very cute as well. I, I you know, yeah. they're very unique evolutionary. They're really cute. Yeah, yeah. But they just, they're just super cute. All right. Well, it's time to wrap it up here. It's uh, really a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about chytrid and frogs. Please hand off to the audience where they can contact you, learn more about your work, or any other resources you would like to share. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be on this podcast, Sam. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about you know, chytrid, my own research, and just amphibians in general. If you want to know more about uh, what I do, you can find me uh, active on Twitter. So it's at Nicholas Wu NZ, um, or you can visit my website as well. I believe Sam, if you publish this podcast, you might I can provide you a link as well that all you can look into. It. Yeah, I'll link all of this in the show notes and the YouTube description. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Nicholas. Great to have you on. Thank you, Sam. That's it for today's episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use. We're also on Twitter and YouTube. It really helps others find our show in the search algorithm. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on EcoChat.